0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Jiu-jitsu is a martial art. It was originally designed to supplement the skills of Japanese warriors who find themselves suddenly in close combat with the enemy. The idea behind it was to use an opponent's weight and momentum against them to grapple with them, throw them and pin them down. Now, think about how something like that might work for you if you were operating with two limbs instead of four. Sean Fong lost half his left arm and his right leg in a freakish set of circumstances when he was just seven years old in Fiji. It was an accident he barely survived. And it was a harrowing loss for a kid who, like just about everyone else on Fiji, was completely crazy about rugby. But after coming to Australia, Sean discovered Brazilian jiu-jitsu and he became the para-world champion in jiu-jitsu. Hello, Sean. Welcome to you, sir. How are you, Richard? What is it about jiu-jitsu, which I've always been hugely interested in, that makes it so suitable for all kinds of people, not just great big buffy blokes?
1: Um, I would say because to be really effective at jiu-jitsu you don't need to be as athletic as you would if you were participating in a striking martial art, yeah? Boxing, Muay Thai, a lot of those, that stuff. Not everybody's born with the um, ability, the physical attributes to knock somebody senseless, right? It takes a lot of training, takes a lot of condition. Jiu-Jitsu is based mainly on timing and leverage, I would say. So whether you were a, a young child, an elderly person, if you can get those principles and apply them, anybody can do it
0: seems to me like the perfect martial art for a kid who wants to get around a bully in their lives.
1: I think it's the perfect martial arts for kids, especially if they want to deal with bullies. Um, I worked for a martial arts school, and just in my experience, if we teach children to hit, they hit. Um, if you were in school, all parents listening to this with young children can probably yeah, your kid's not going to go well if they start hitting the other people in school. Yeah, you're probably going to get suspended or expelled. Of course, we teach them if you can de-escalate the situation before it you know, gets to the point where you start thinking about hitting each other, awesome, yeah? But I think jiu in that sense too is primarily like, let's focus on the defense first before we just start, all right, we have a problem, let's start hitting each other. Let's try and de-escalate and get
0: away if we can. It seems like it's not so much about frontal assault at all. It seems to be more about sidestepping these things. But but exactly, Um
1: Using somebody's energy momentum against them, it makes sense that they have to be the person to initiate the um, the aggravation. Then using their energy against them, that's that's probably a big part of it.
0: Presumably, too, if you do succeed in taking on that school bully who's coming at you, who's bigger than you, and you do slip around them, trip them over, or toss them if need be, or put them in a position where they're suddenly lying crashing on the ground, it looks bad for them too, doesn't it? And you look, it seems like you've almost done nothing.
1: For sure, especially if you're smaller and, and perceived weaker. Yeah, I, w- I would say so. Let, let's start with the verbal jiu-jitsu first, yeah? <laughs> if you can talk them out of whatever aggression, yeah? And, I mean, there's lots of martial arts texts. If, if it's already at the level where somebody has to get physical with you, you've probably already lost.
0: How different is the psychology of something like jiu-jitsu compared to something like boxing?
1: frame of mind i think you have to be much more of a pugilist to be a boxer or to be so i've heard um people that practice muay thai they have this saying even if you win a boxing fight or even if you win a muay thai fight you still have to go to the hospital you're going to take a lot of damage so mixed martial arts for example a lot of people worry about head injuries Jiu-jitsu is often referred to as the soft martial art or the gentle martial art, just because there is no striking. There's not a lot of blunt force trauma to the head. So that's a big plus for a lot of parents looking to get their kids into something that builds confidence, that builds strength and endurance, and just teaching kids about their
0: their bodies and what's possible without taking any damage. You compete without your prosthetics, Sean. Does that give you some advantage? Like I mentioned at the start, does your opponent not quite fully understand where the center of gravity in your body really lies when you don't have an arm or a leg?
1: 100%. Let's say this. And most, most people, once you've been in the sport for a while, you develop a, a taste you, you, for certain techniques. For example, if the majority of my throws involve me grabbing your left wrist, that's how I set up certain throws. If you get to the competition on the day and your opponent doesn't have a left arm, of your takedowns are gone, (laughs) right? So I use the speed chess analogy when talking about para jiu-jitsu, right? If I'm going for a takedown and it's a rugby style tackle where I try to grab your left leg, if there's no left leg, what are you going to do? You have to have a backup plan. You have to have an example. So I use that to my benefit because when a lot of people go for my right leg, there's no right leg. When they go to grab my left arm, there's no left arm. And while, while they're pondering like, oh, what do I do now? I've already changed the position. I've moved on to something else. So I'm effectively trying to tighten the noose around your
0: neck while you're trying to still figure out what you can grab. This is this a purer form of jujitsu, then? Because it's not really about what you think you see in front of you then. It's more about the whole principle of evasion and force and momentum. But if I had to put
1: one word to my jujitsu style, it's deception. Right. I make you try and go for something, but it's that's not it. So a lot of people would look at me automatically, right? And I've had this many times, I've visited gyms all around the world. A lot of people will look at me on site and their first reaction is probably pity, especially because if they don't see my rank, if they've, they just see a one-arm, one-legged guy, take his prosthetics off, hop onto the mat, a lot of people are like, well, I don't want to be that guy that tries to mop the floor with a double amputee. But they, they learn pretty quick, I have some tricks. What are those (laughs) tricks? Well, I don't want to give away too much. I don't want to give give away too much. In principle, then, in principle. Um, My favorite stuff, this is going to sound really terrible, yeah? Um, I like chokes. Right? I like chokes. Um, A choke hold, is that what it is? A choke hold. I think there's some guys that are very, very tough. They can get out of joint locks if you put them on their arms or legs, but there's a. The old saying in jiu-jitsu is there's no one's tough when it comes to chokeholds. If you get a chokehold right, everybody taps so they go to sleep.
0: How much of a thing is jiu-jitsu amongst disabled people? Do you hear from other disabled people once they become aware of what you're doing and what you're achieving?
1: I got into jiu-jitsu in 2012. And at that time, I didn't know of anybody else in jiu-jitsu. Nowadays, because... I've competed against able-bodied people because I was lucky enough to go over to Abu Dhabi in 2017 because of social media. And I think now disabled athletes are given so much more of a platform. We have so much more of a fair go these days. You and I were talking before about the uh, the last Paralympic games that were in Japan. There's never been a bigger platform for for people with disabilities. So because of all that, I do get more uh, messages and you know, from all around the world and here in Australia. More amputees, more blind athletes, uh, people with cerebral palsy, spina bifida, that all want to give it a try. And if anything, that just shows like, how powerful it is, not just as a martial art, but as a tool for rehabilitation right? and, and building more inclusive communities.
0: When you're seeing a blind person... Competing in jujitsu—that's a completely different kind of disability to yours. I'm assuming. What other things does the blind jujitsu artist have in mind when they're competing?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. Now, I've—I've I've only seen maybe two or three blind athletes compete. I've wrestled with a couple of blind athletes, and from my point of view, wrestling against a blind athlete—just don't let them come close. Why is that? They're, because they're so good at, how would I say it, as soon as they as soon as they touch you, you're in trouble. their 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 sense of feel is next level. Um, I actually know of a blind athlete. He's a black belt who lives out in the Blue mountains. he his neighbor was getting robbed, right He heard all the commotion, made his way across, and he he stopped the robber. They called the cops, he prevented a robbery. That gives you an indication of what the human body is, possible, is capable of, even though you might not have the gift of sight.
0: Tell me about a guy called Mark who lived in Bondi in Sydney who contacted you.
1: Ah, that. This was a few years ago. One day I get this message. Um, this person named Mark contacted me. and He said he really wanted to try jiu-jitsu. He really wanted to give it a go. He'd seen my story in the papers and he wanted to come for a class. So I invited him over. We had a class and I asked him, why, why is it you want to try jiu-jitsu? So Mark told me a few years prior he'd been involved in a car accident and since then he was paralyzed from about the chest down. Now prior to his accident, he told me that when he was growing up as a teenager, he was a football player, you know, rough and tumble. He said he'd been in his fair share of fights on the football field. Now prior to his accident, Mark was about six foot four, 110 kilos, big, strong guy. After his accident though, he told me this story that one day he was going through Town Hall Station here. And this guy, whether he was drunk or on drugs or something, just came up and started pushing Mark around in his wheelchair. And Mark said for the first time in his life, he felt powerless. He said this guy was pushing his wheelchair, and because of his injuries and because he was paralyzed, he couldn't generate enough force to hit the guy on his arms or to shake him off. The most sickening part of the story is Mark said this was a town hall station. Like after work, there were thousands of people around, and nobody did anything. So it was the first time Mark was like, "Wow, like even a, a kid could flip my wheelchair over, take my phone, take my wallet, take him, and there's nothing I can do about it." So if I can't hit him anymore, maybe I can do something with grabbing. Maybe you know somebody like Sean can teach me something about number one, how to fall correctly without hitting my head on the ground. And then what other options are available to me? Are they wrist locks? Are they joint holes? Can I keep somebody who's aggressive towards me at bay long enough for help to arrive? And I thought, wow, like that's, that's the kind of story that makes me do what I do. If I can give him just a little bit of confidence yeah, or just a little bit of peace while he's rolling down the street, that's, that's what I want to do.
0: Sean, tell me about growing up in Fiji. What was it like for you living on a tropical island as a little boy?
1: Oh, I loved it. Fiji for me, I don't think I could ask for a better childhood. So I was born in the capital, Suva, and my grandparents owned a farm. We had pigs, we had cows, we had lots of dogs. So I remember going to the beach, playing in the rivers, going to the waterfalls, lots of like barbecues, wars with my family. I couldn't have asked for a better childhood, yeah? Like growing up in paradise.
0: I mentioned you being into rugby, seriously. You were massively into rugby as a kid I'm and still are? St- I'm still into rugby.
1: So if you know anything about Fiji or the Pacific Islands in general, um, we're rugby crazy. If, if Fiji wins a tournament, the whole country stops.
0: Literally, Canberra Raiders yeah. were your team. Why were the, why were the Raiders your team? Uh, the Raiders were our team,
1: I think, I might have this wrong, but from my memory, we first got TV in 1993. And everybody supported the Raiders because they had a Fijian on the team. It was Nor Andruku. But this was, this was the super team. They had like Mal Meninga, Bradley Clyde, uh, Ricky Stewart. Like They had that team. And then Norn Druka was the winger. So because they had the Fijia and everyone went for Canberra.
0: September 1989, you were seven years old. What can you tell me about the day that you had that accident?
1: Uh, I remember it vividly. I went to school that day. And then um, myself and my brother, we went to the train tracks. The train tracks weren't that far. So where I went to primary school was on the western side of Viti level in a place called Nandi. That's where the international airport is. Um, not too far from our school were the train tracks. And my brother and I decided to, to go down and play. Now, I know a lot of kids... You know the Jamaican movie, um, Cool Runnings, about the Olympic yeah. bobsled team. Mm. We'd do something like that where there's a lot of empty train carts on the side of the tracks. A couple of kids would jump on, a few would push the cart down the wheels, and off you'd go. I don't know what possessed me to do it. Trying to remember, I just remember thinking, well, if this is like fast, what happens if I climb on top the moving train? So I ran after the train... Jumped up, top, up on top of the sugar cane, pulled myself up, and then I realized that my brother wasn't with me. So I thought, well, I better hop off and try and find him. Unfortunately, when I went to jump off, my clothes caught on the sugar cane and pulled me underneath the wheels of the train. So the train, the train was moving, and my, my right leg was the first limb to be caught in the wheels of the train. As it pulled me further and further under, I tried to hold the train with my right arm And pull my leg free with my left arm. And that's when the wheels caught my left arm. So I was told later that the train dragged me about 50 to 60 meters before my leg severed. So I was lying by the side of the train tracks when my brother found me. I remember he ran up. I remember the look on his face. He disappeared into the fields where a few men were were cutting cane. You're still conscious at this point? I'm still conscious at this point. And um, I remember them wrapping me in blankets and just how shocked everyone looks. I remember looking down at my limbs. I know motorcyclists call it um, being gloved. So it was like somebody had held my elbow and then stripped all the skin off of it. And I thought, oh, well, that's not good. I remember them wrapping me in blankets. They took me to a nearby house and someone called the ambulance. I remember I was conscious
0: in the ambulance. Sean, why didn't you bleed to death? I don't understand. I don't, do you know? why? That, did someone find a tourniquet for you? I can't remember. I can't remember
1: that bit. I don't know why I didn't bleed to death either. But I remember being conscious in the ambulance. And then, <laughs> it's funny now. It wasn't funny at the time. I remember thinking my mom's going to beat me up. Like, you know, I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm in real serious trouble. You worried trouble. about your mother I was worried point? about. I was worried about getting hiding. That was the, the first of my priorities at the time. And then I passed out and woke up three days later in the hospital in Lotoka. And that was the start of my, my life with a new body, missing, a, missing an arm and a leg. I was told later that my injuries were so severe and the blood loss was so severe that a priest came to give me my last rites. So once they were fairly certain that I wasn't going to die from blood loss, then came the risk of of infection. Yeah, I remember when I woke up, I was was sick for a while. You know, it's hot in Fiji and just hot and sweating with fevers and, and whatever. But thankfully, I'm here.
0: You must have been in terrible pain. Or can you not remember that? When it first happened, I
1: think I was in shock, so I couldn't really remember. When I woke up, yeah, it was it was very, very painful. How long were you in hospital for after that accident? From memory, just over two months.
0: I don't know if a child can even think in these terms, but seven years old, what do you remember of waking up in a body that was suddenly very unfamiliar to you?
1: To be honest, when I woke up, the last thing I was thinking about was my body. Why? My my first feeling after the accident was one of very deep shame. I felt very, very guilty. Um shame about what? Because I saw the look on my mum's face. I mean, there's probably parents gonna listen to this show. You imagine your child having an injury like the one I just did. I remember my mum's face when, when she came in and saw me in the state that I was in. And as a as a as a man now, you don't want to cause that type of pain to people that you love so much. I remember asking where my brother was, because even though I had the accident, he was the one that found me. And they said, "Oh, they'd sent him to stay with some friends for for a few days." Right? That's that's pretty traumatic finding your brother on the train tracks, bleeding the way I was, missing a couple of limbs. So my first thought wasn't about myself. It was like I've I've caused so much pain to my mum and my brother. How 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 do you try and process that? And at the time, I didn't know anyone missing an arm or a leg, let alone double amputees. There was no point of reference. There's no one that had been through what I had been through. So it wasn't like I could speak to somebody and be like, guys, does anyone else know what this feels like? So I just felt like I wanted the earth to open up and swallow me. I didn't want to talk to anyone. And unfortunately... Everyone wanted to ask, but but why did you jump on the train? I'm like, I don't know. I don't have the words. I'm I'm too ashamed to speak about it. Please oh, just leave me alone. You know, every single
0: <laughs> you know? person in the world has done something stupid and harebrained as a kid, and sure. it just went bad for you. That's sure, but but the consequences that I have to deal with. There's not a day yeah. that
1: doesn't go by from small little things that the average able-bodied person. You probably got up this morning, tied your shoelaces, did up your shirt, all these little things, and you don't have to go through what I go through. There's not a day that doesn't go by, I don't think about that.
0: I mean, I'm talking about the why, you know, when people want to know why you did what you did. Sure. Every kid does something stupid and harebrained.
1: But because of my carelessness, because of my lack of thought, I'm still suffering for it. So it took a while to come to, to peace with that.
0: So, for me to what, accept that. so what was your mindset then, given that you'd felt like you'd badly let down your parents' God? Or, <laughs> um, were you sort of trying to be a good kid after that then? Is that what it, you were thinking? Or, or Trying to be a good kid. I don't even think, I think I was in
1: survival mode. I was just trying to get through it and do the best I could. Now, I was born left-handed. I used to write with my left hand. Now I've lost my left hand. Little things like taking myself to the bathroom or peeling a banana, all those different things I had to learn again. So again, being a good kid or trying to excel in anything wasn't even on my radar yet. I was just trying to learn how to survive in my new
0: body. Often uh, these days when someone goes through a shockingly traumatic accident like the one you went through, Sean, there'll be someone to come along and say, welcome to phase two of your life. This is a different phase of your life now. Did you have that sense or did anyone say that to you?
1: No. No. I think for almost the first six months to a year, number one, I had to build up the strength to be able to hop. So that took a couple of months. But then I didn't have prosthetic limbs to start. Somebody found a wheelchair. So I used to sit on the wheelchair and try and wheel myself around the house like that. Um, I think eventually the Rotary Club of New Zealand, there was an article about me in the newspaper and it took them a while to hear about me, but then they donated my first wheelchair.
0: Were you not getting around at all uh, other than hopping until you got a wheelchair?
1: That's right. So, no, 1989 in Fiji, there there wasn't counselling, there weren't occupational therapists, there there was nothing like that that existed at the time.
0: What was school like for you once you were well enough to go back?
1: Once I was well enough to go back... I know that the kids that I went to school with probably have a very different perspective to mine. But I, I felt like a freak going back, you know, in a small community in Fiji that there'd never been anything like that happen. So they, they tried to include me in many things. They tried to, you know, make me feel like I was just one of the, another one of the boys. Or, but no, I didn't I didn't feel like that at all. School for me was very, very lonely and I don't know, frustrating. Yeah, it, well, I, I didn't have a fun experience at school.
0: Where would you go to find peace? For me, growing up in the
1: islands was a blessing because there's always water around, right? Even now, as a double amputee using prosthetics, when you're using an artificial leg, you constantly have to look out for uh, trip or slip hazards, anything that might catch on your prosthetic, anything that you might slip on. But I've always found a lot of peace in the water. Right? I could be in the water six to eight hours a day and... You're weightless. You're free. I can go anywhere my mind wants me to go. I don't have to think about it too much. So, the water, the water is probably my place of peace.
0: Right, boys, you up? Does all that for you? Exactly. There's also, no weight. It's probably not easy to tell that you're a W amp- amputee if you're talking to someone you know in the water. you with your head above the water. Is it? That's
1: right. That's right.
0: So I wonder how interesting that is for you to observe how it is to talk to someone when they just treat you like anyone else, and then they see you. As a double amputee, it must be kind of interesting to see if they change because people are weird around disabled people. They often want, them, want to kid glove them, they get anxious around That's disabled true. people. Do you find that?
1: Just, just coming to the studio today, I've had three people come up to me in the street and just ask me if I need help.
0: What does that do for you being in the water? That, what feelings come over you when you're in, in the water then and particularly at that time in your life when you're a kid after that accident?
1: I'm free. I get to be playful. I don't have to think about if there's consequences. If I put my prosthetic foot down in a certain way, I'll slip or I'll fall. Or I'll, do you understand? I always, I can't walk as fast as I'd like because if I make an error in distance and in judgment in foot placement, I'm going to fall over. When I'm in the water, I don't I don't have that. I don't have to think. I can just go. So that was, I love it. And then. Oh, I wish I had this when I was young. I've heard now that there's earphones that can play music while you're in the water. My goodness, I, w- I wouldn't have got out of the pool if I had that 20, 30 years ago.
0: Sometimes disabled people develop quite outgoing personalities, which they learn to do to put people at ease. And it's funny 100%. how just, yeah, you have to yeah. Do you think that's you? Or do you think you were, no. you're more outgoing than you would have been? Uh, I think
1: I've always been shy. I
0: remember my dad's sister, my aunt, told me,
1: like, you were already shy after the accident. You were like almost mute. You didn't want to talk to people. You didn't want to draw any attention to yourself. Yeah, that, that was me. Now, as for other people, oh, I've met some characters. I've met some larrikins with disabilities. This is just how I think. I personally don't like the word disability. I don't like being perceived as a disabled person. I think, forget the dictionary definition of disabled. My definition is you're just lacking in some way. My disability happens to be that I'm missing an arm and a leg. It's more obvious than yours, but everyone's lacking in some way. Do you understand? I do. But that doesn't stop me in any way, shape, or form from trying to achieve my potential. If you're a larrikin, you're a larrikin. Whether you're born with one arm and one leg, or you know, if you're born in Europe or whatever it is, let your personality come through.
0: Broadcast, broadcast, this is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more Conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. How old were you when you came to Australia, Sean? And what do you remember of that time?
1: I believe I was 14, 15. I started year eight. I went into high school here. So I remember I remember thinking how busy Australia was compared to Fiji. But no, I loved it. There's a lot to love about Australia. And now that I'm living in the country, there's so much about Australia that I wish I wish I could take two months and drive around the in a van or something with the dog and the missus. There's so much of this country I haven't seen that we'll put it on the bucket list one day.
0: When you came here, what kind of sports were available
1: to you? Ooh, to me? This is going to sound terrible, yeah, but I remember through the people that used to make artificial limbs, they were like, oh, if you're interested in in getting into sports, there was sitting volleyball and table tennis. Now, no offense to anybody that's listening. I Mm. grew up idolizing rugby players and... You know, when I was born in the 80s, Mike Tyson was like, "Wow, look at that! Yeah, I'd never seen anyone do that to somebody else inside a boxing ring." So I've always been interested in the more physically demanding sports. Sitting volleyball and and table tennis just didn't appeal to me at the time. So I didn't even I wasn't even aware there was disabled swimming until I was
0: discovered by accident. So when did you take your first steps into the world of martial arts then?
1: Um, in in high school, I had some friends in high school that were very into martial arts. I think they had Taekwondo backgrounds. And the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, really exploded into global popularity. I think it started in 1993. So I was 11 then. So I grew up knowing about boxing. And, you know, I used to be that probably annoying kid that would watch Bruce Lee movies and Jackie Chan movies and Jean-Claude Van Damme and be like, wow, that's amazing what these guys could do, you know. So I'd be trying to kick things around the house. I was that annoying little kid. So I met these guys in high school and I used to go to their place and they used to play like UFC fight videos. And I used to remember thinking like, that's fantastic. Like, I'd love to try that. I remember going to the gym with them and going to boxing and kickboxing classes. And I loved it. I remember they showed me Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and they showed me a few techniques, chokes and armbars. But I remember watching what they showed and thinking, that's cool, but there's no way I could do that. You need two arms and two legs for a lot of the techniques they were doing. So I didn't really think about it again.
0: What were you doing for work once you finished high school?
1: Uh, I did a few things. I worked at Bunnings for a little bit. My first real job, I think I worked at the RTA. I used to sell eTolls. Yeah? Yeah, eTolls. This was back yeah, in North Sydney and a few other branches. I think I was out in Chatswood. So yeah, that was that was my first real job. And because I was in North Sydney, I used to go and swim laps at the North Sydney Olympic pool.
0: Tell me how you were talent spotted there one day.
1: It's funny, the amount of things that happen in my life that are a result of a, an accident. So normally when I get to the pool, I take my prosthetic leg off and I leave it by the side of the pool. I hop in, do my laps and I get out. One day there's this old Aussie guy just sitting there and he's like, is this your leg? I'm like, yeah. He's like, man, I don't know if you know, you're very fast. Yeah, This is the number of the Australian coach. I reckon you give him a call. I think he's going to want to meet you. I was like, oh, okay, Cool. So it took me a while to build up the courage to call the number. I called the number. It was um, Graham Carroll, who was over on the northern beaches at the time. So he was like, yeah, cool, come for a time trial. I went and I remember it was in the middle of an afternoon training session and he blew his whistle and he made everyone stop and wait on the side of the pool. He's like, you, number one, he wasn't impressed because I was wearing a pair of North Queensland cowboy footy shorts. And he's like, hey, you know, this is manly territory. Yeah. I'm like, I didn't know. Look, yeah. He's like, all right. Get up on the block, jump in, swim as fast as you can to the other side. I did that. He was like, all right, two bits of feedback. That was the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, oh, no, that's terrible. What do you
0: mean, like technique? Technique. was like, right. that was
1: terrible. Like, yeah. That's horrible. Don't, don't,
0: don't do, do that. that.
1: <laughs> but the good news is you're very fast. Like that, that time will probably get you top 20 in the world. And I was like, oh. He was like, yeah, I think, I think you should move to the northern beaches. I think you should come and train with me. I'll see if I can get you a scholarship here to this pool. I was like, okay, cool. I was 26, I think.
0: How had you been keeping yourself so fit to get those kind of times just from day-to-day swimming? Was it just normal swimming in the right, in but the pool? It's funny, looking back on it now, I thought I was fit at
1: the time because I'd go to the pool and if I did 20 to 25 laps, I'm like, all right, I'm doing pretty good. And then when I got to squad training, they do anywhere from like four and a half to seven Ks per session, sometimes two or three sessions a day. So what what my idea of being physically fit at the time compared to what it was for athletes on a state, national, international level was completely different.
0: Was there all this pent-up energy in you at that time? But that's that's exactly what I, I thought it was. So I remember
1: after the accident how frustrating and the feeling of just sitting on the sidelines and watching my brothers, my cousins, everyone else running around and how much fun they were having playing football and basketball... And one part of me would wish they would stop, but I also didn't want them to stop because I could see how much fun they were having. That's a very, very lonely feeling. Now, I've always had this thing like, I wouldn't say I'm a religious person, but I was like, this can't be all that God hasn't, has planned for me. This can't be all the universe has planned for me. One day something's going to come along where I can pour my heart and soul into this thing. And that was swimming. And when it came along, I was like, man, I'm going to be excellent at this thing.
0: Did you believe that or did you just hope that? 100% I believed it. I didn't believe. I don't, I don't
1: believe it was an accident that was just supposed to make me feel like I was worthless. Swimming was the the catalyst that really like. I can be an athlete. I know I'm physically talented. I know I'm smart. I know I'm capable. But without swimming, I'm just talking about being all those things. Jumping in the pool and actually doing, you know, competitions. Got to show people I'm I'm just as capable as the rest of you.
0: So when you're doing training, and you're Slicing through the water with this technique this time round, I assume, and doing this for kilometer after kilometer after kilometer in the pool. What changes did you see in yourself, Sean, in this period? Um, I was in a reasonable reasonable shape. I got fit very, very fast. What about so in your I head think... though? What about in your head?
1: In my head, the the transformation was probably more to do with my confidence. Because I think when most people see me walk into a room with my artificial leg clunking as I hit the ground, the last thing that they think is athlete, right? Again, it didn't even cross my mind when I was growing up that one day, especially growing up in Fiji, that one day I would swim for Australia. Never crossed my mind. So you see people, even in conversation, they're like, you're a swimmer. I'm like, yeah, me, a swimmer. They're like, how? I'm like, the same way you would try to swim, I just do it with one arm and one leg.
0: So with all this swimming and training, were you aiming at the Paralympics? It wasn't even a... It wasn't even a thought until I had that
1: conversation with Grub. And then I got a state title. Then I got a national title. From when I started training with Grub, sorry, his nickname is Grub. His name's Graham Carroll. It was six months after I first started training that we got the world record in the 100 butterfly. Now that was in a short course pool. I got that at the Melbourne Nationals in 2008. A world record. A world record in a 25 meter pool for the 100 butterfly. I didn't even know I was close to the world record. That's how uninitiated I was into the world of para-swimming. I couldn't believe it. For me, it was like a dream. For nationals, we'd go to Tasmania, we'd go to Queensland, we'd go to Victoria, all these different places around the world. Then one day they contact you, they want to take you to the Berlin Open. Yeah, I, I never dreamed I'd be in Germany one day, let alone to swim for Australia. Like it, was, it was magical, yeah. So it was, it was kind of my ticket to see the world.
0: You were aiming for the London Paralympics. What happened?
1: I was. So four years between Olympic cycles, I started just after Beijing. And my goal was to represent Australia at the London Olympics. Nine months before, I tore my rotator cuff in my right arm. So that's that's my main weapon. If you're a freestyler and a butterfly, my shoulder. And after meeting with a few people, they said there was no way I could recover in time in nine months to... to Launch a successful campaign. So that was the end
0: of my Olympic dream. What tends to happen to other swimmers when they retire? Were you concerned about what would happen about having your career cut short like that?
1: Yeah, I'd I'd seen a few swimmers that when they stopped swimming, see, I was sixty five kilos when I used to compete. I weighed myself a couple of weeks ago. I was eighty seven, but when I was sixty five, I had nothing on me. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a lot healthier nowadays. But I've seen some swimmers quit, and they easily go up to one hundred and ten, even more. Yeah. So I enjoy being fit and healthy. So where did you go to keep fit and healthy? Well, then then I started to entertain the idea of doing martial arts again. Yeah, I actually looked up kickboxing and Muay Thai, and that's when I discovered Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. There was a gym not far from where I was living. I thought I'd go down and give it a try and see what happened.
0: What makes Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu different from traditional Japanese Jiu-Jitsu, if there is such a comparison to be made? The
1: main element is going to the ground. So Japanese Jiu-Jitsu, Jiu-Jitsu in general... There's striking, there's throwing, and then there's the groundwork, where you can take somebody to the ground, get to a dominant position, and then use chokeholds or um, joint locks to try and win. I think the Japanese emphasis, they emphasize more on the standing part of what's happening, whereas in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the emphasis is on going to the ground.
0: So it's closer to wrestling then?
1: A lot closer to wrestling. It's a combination of wrestling and and judo.
0: Given that there's all that grappling going on, is it acceptable to grab the other players. A
1: hundred percent. That's a big part of the game.
0: And what are you wearing when you're
1: you wear what we call a gi. It looks like pajamas, like a judo uniform.
0: And how do you wear your gi having just one arm and one leg?
1: I like to tailor my gi. So because I have half my left arm, arm is missing at my elbow. I like to cut the sleeve so that it's just a little bit longer than my elbow. And on the side where I have no leg on my right leg, I like to cut the leg off and then sew it up because, like you just said, the, the other competitor can grab my sleeves or my pant legs and use that against me. They can choke me with it if they want to.
0: So given you're not wearing prosthetics when you're doing it, then you want to get on the ground pretty quick then, I'd imagine. Yes. Is that right? Yes. And then you have all kinds of advantages suddenly. Yes. <laughs> I'm not, I don't want to give you any of my
1: secrets, Richard. Yeah, this is going to go out to all these people all right. and I'm going to have everyone gunning for me. How did you feel yourself falling in love with Jiu-Jitsu? Oh, I loved it from day one. When I grew up, I wanted to be a rugby player. My simple analogy for a lot of people that don't know what jiu jitsu is it's rugby without the running. Yeah, you put a hit on someone, you drag mm-hmm. them to the ground, right? And then you try to make them tap. Yeah?
0: It's like tackling is a fine art. That's it. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's technical tackling. That's exactly what it is.
0: Uh-huh. And what was the first jiu jitsu move you were taught when you walked into that gym in Sydney?
1: Um, it's called a loop choke. Now, to, to give you some context, I remember thinking that they're going to laugh at me when I walk into this gym, yeah. Because a lot of the, like I'm a huge UFC fan, a lot of the chokeholds, joint locks, pins, whatever it is that I knew all involved two arms and two legs. Now, to his credit, the instructor at the time was a guy named Fabio. And he was so, his energy was so happy and infectious. Whatever I said, I was like, but listen, I've only got one arm. He's like, no, no, no it's no problem, it's no problem. And he's like, we're going to do what's called a loop choke. And I was like, what's a loop choke? He's like, see see the jacket that I'm wearing. You're going to grab it in a certain way. And you're going to roll... And as you roll, you're going to wrap it around my neck. (laughs) I know that sounds terrible, right? It sounds terrible. But I was like, I'm in love. love. Please, show show me that. Show me this thing. And that was it. I had so much fun. Like I I forgot how self-conscious I was. I forgot there was people watching. I forgot I was dripping sweat and exhausted. I had so
0: much fun. You were an elite athlete, though. You'd been an elite swimmer. Did that make you overconfident in some ways? Uh, For sure. Because I feel I'm fairly
1: coordinated. And like you said, I I feel like I'm a good athlete, but it also led to a false confidence in jujitsu. How so? Because I think everybody took it easy on me for the first few months. I said before, no one wants to be that guy that kicks the crap out of a double amputee when you first meet him. But that gives me a false sense of my own capabilities. I, I was doing better than I should have been.
0: And how did you realize that they'd been going easy on you?
1: Uh, Well, some people, you can see it, and I'd get upset with them. But a couple of my coaches were like, I went in my first ever tournament and got choked unconscious, right? Because I heard the old jujitsu warriors, the old masters, they were like, no, if you get caught in it, just go to sleep. And I thought, all right, that's what I'm going to do. That's what the real, like, kamikaze style, I'm going to do that. And my coach at the time was like, you're an idiot. Like, why would you do that? Just tap and go again. (laughs) Oh, yeah, there is that. Anyway. But I had the conversation with him and he was like, listen, I think, you know, the guys, they don't want to bash you. They don't want to go hard on you. And that annoyed me greatly. And I said, well, if they're not going to say it to me, please put the word out. No mercy. And I'll survive and I'll adapt and I'll get better. And eventually that started happening. Now, there were times where I regretted saying that because sometimes I'd go home so beaten up like I could barely blink. But it's probably what made me as tough as I am today.
0: Your partner, Karen, also does Jiu-Jitsu. Tell me how you met her.
1: So I'm born and raised in Fiji. Karen's dad is from Fiji and her mom is from Arizona. So when she was growing up, she used to go back to Fiji for her summer holidays. So when I met Karen, she was 16 and I was 21. And we met in Nandi. And I just remember thinking like, wow, that's a pretty Fijian girl with an American accent. And we just started talking. We spoke for a few nights and then I never saw her. Many years later, I joined Facebook to communicate with my friends and family. And one of the girls that was that I knew from 90 flew to LA to be in the bridal party for a wedding. And sure enough, Karen was also a member of the bridal party. So when her picture came up, it wasn't called sliding into your DMs at the time, but I basically sent her a message and was like, are you that girl I met? in Fiji on the beach about eight, nine years ago. She said, yeah, that was me. How are you? At the time, I was traveling the world, swimming for Australia, and she was living in Chicago. A few months later, she said she wanted to come and visit me in Australia, and that was it. I haven't let her go ever since. So she's gone on to do some amazing things in jiu-jitsu. She's won state, national, international titles. She's won second in the world at the world championships. She's dangerous. I don't back chat too much at home.
0: (laughs) You entered your first Our world title in 2017, Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. Tell me how this tournament came about in the first place.
1: It was actually Karen doing well. So the organisation, the Abu Dhabi organisation, used to run tournaments around the world. And if you won your division, you would win a ticket. They'd pay for your airfares, accommodation, to go and fight the best in the world in Abu Dhabi. In 2016, Karen won that ticket. So she went over there, she's fighting on the big stage, and she says she was hanging out at the hotel pool when she saw a couple of disabled athletes hopping around the pool. She approached one and was like, "Hey, my partner's, you know, he's actually missing an arm and a leg." And they got to talking. She got one of their details. Anyway, this this guy was a brown belt at the time. In 2016, was the first ever amputee exhibition fight in Abu Dhabi. In 2017, I got a call. We've heard about you. We've, we've heard you, you're fighting and doing things in the competition scene there in Australia. The Sheik's putting together this tournament where he wants the best disabled athletes to fly into Abu Dhabi. We want you to represent Australia. Would you come? I said, I've been waiting for this my whole life. Like,
0: Try and stop let's,
1: me. Let's go. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. I'll start training now. That was it.
0: How did you feel going into your match? Who were you put up against? Well,
1: going to Abu Dhabi was a big deal, number one. They love jiu-jitsu in Abu Dhabi. I've never seen anything like it. I've been to a lot of places in the world. If you go anywhere in the world, you'll see kids kicking a football or a soccer ball. Or, you know, they have a bat and a ball or they're playing some type of sport. In in Abu Dhabi, the kids are wrestling and they move around in packs of three. So you and I will be wrestling and the third kid will be like giving out the points and calling out the judges'
0: rules and they love it over there. Oh, it's the equivalent of straight cricket, in other words. Pretty right, much, right, yeah.
1: pretty much. And like the stadium is packed it was a big spectacle when I got there. Going into the match, before that, I'd probably only wrestled with two people. One was a blind athlete and one other person was missing his leg. That's when I really got to feel how awkward it is wrestling with me because your, your weight distribution is different. Your center of gravity is different. So I was very nervous because often in jiu-jitsu tournaments, you don't know who you're fighting until you walk out on the day. Oh, I'm fighting Richard. Ah, Richard hasn't got this arm. He hasn't got this leg. Okay, I have to make adjustments and figure out how I'm going to get to safety while still scoring and while still threatening with a submission. Um, In the finals, I fought an athlete from England. His name is Stuart Penn. Super nice guy, super tough, super technical. And I was lucky to get the win. And it was amazing. I thought with swimming, when swimming finished, when my rotator cuff injury happened, I wouldn't be competing anymore. So... To get one more
0: title, I was on top of the world. Tell me about the winning grapple against this man.
1: Sure, it was very tough. I remember coming out of that match thinking like I'd been in a real fistfight. It was that tough. But I got him down. I passed his guard a couple of times. I think the end result was 11-0. So while the, the score would seem like it was a dominant match my way, he, he made me fight for every single point.
0: This is a pretty singular and rare group of people, disabled jiu-jitsu practitioners, fans, obsessives. So there you all are in Abu Dhabi together. It's a small but <laughs> powerful community. What's that like for you to be hanging out with these guys afterwards, talking with each other afterwards? It must be amazing. I think they're amazing,
1: yeah, and I've had this feeling often.
0: Because they're going to know things that about you in your life and how it is to be you that the rest of us will never know, right?
1: Sure, there's, there's that empathy. I think to most able-bodied people, they might look at somebody like myself or somebody else who's um, involved in sport at a high level who has a disability. I don't think we think any different to you guys. We talk about the same things. We talk about the same struggles. Yeah? We're normal people. We just happen to be missing arms and legs. Now, when I hear some of their stories... So, for example, flying into Abu Dhabi, I got in about three in the morning. And when I went up to my room, my roommate was from Kazakhstan. The interpreters helped me translate his story later. So he was born with a disability. And they told me that in his part of the world, if you're born with a disability, they they think you're cursed by the gods. So at a very young age, his family abandoned him and he was taken in by an orphanage. And they were telling me his story that basically, he works for this orphanage, he does construction all day, breaking rocks and things like that. And if he doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Now, looking at this guy, his name was Ildar. It's obvious, he's had a very rough life. Now, I became attached to Ildar. He was my little mate from Kazakhstan. And he weighed more than 20 kilos less than me. In jiu-jitsu, you fight in your weight class and you also fight in what's called the open weight division. The openweight division can be anyone from 50 kilos. The heaviest person I've seen at a competition was 180 kilos. Ildar was probably around the 50-something mark. I was supposed to have two fights in Abu Dhabi. The first one was the athlete from the UK. And the second, after my first fight, I was like, all right, who have I got for the openweight division? They were like, Ildar. And I was like, Ildar from Kazakhstan. I was like, there's so many tough guys here from Brazil, black belts. Like, Let me fight one of them. Don't let me fight Ildar. Ildar had his first match. He came to the back and was throwing up, so he was declared medically unfit. And I was so relieved. I was like, "Don't make me fight Ildar. I don't." Want him. Yeah. So he's he's got an amazing story. When I think of people like Ildar, my up, you know, coming up in sports, in swimming, and whatever, I'm so fortunate. I've had some of the best coaches in Australia and around the world invest their time and energy into me. I'm fortunate as an Australian athlete. I'm flown all over the world and receive the best coaching and nutrition advice. And this guy hasn't even had any of that. Yeah, it would have been a mismatch to fight him.
0: So now, as you say, you live in country New South Wales. You sound like you're very happy there. Oh,
1: I love it. What do you, what, what
0: do, you do now? What's, what kind of work are you doing these days?
1: At the moment, I'm a disability support worker. I work with people with primarily intellectual disabilities. Um, and it's very, very rewarding. Yeah, I got into this after the pandemic, I know how hard life can get. I'm a, I'm very aware of the stigma that's attached to a lot of people with disabilities. Yeah, and I feel like I'm probably one of the best to to help them because I can empathize a lot more than the average person. I feel anyway.
0: You'd always be running into people who wouldn't be quite on the same wavelength as you. What do you really want the rest of us to know about disabled people like you specifically and and more generally?
1: Ah, uh, but just like you. We're just like you. Um, I've said it already. I'll say it again. I, I don't like the word disabled. I don't like to be perceived about the person as a disabled person. I think my flaws just happen to be more physical than everybody else. I have good days. I have bad days. I forget the lady's name off the top of my head, but she coined the term inspiration porn. Is it Stella Young?
0: Stella Young. Stella Young. The great great Stella Young. Yeah. Right.
1: She was nominated for an award when she was in high school. They, they, you know, voted for her to be this young achiever. And she was like, why? They think because we, we have a disability. Just because I woke up and remembered my name, like, let's all give her a round of applause. I haven't done anything. Have I contributed to anything positive to those around me? No. Talk to us. Treat us just the same. Sometimes I'm very, very self-conscious when I'm out in public. But... Try to have some empathy. I I promise you we have a lot that we can offer the world and society and just give us a shot.
0: How brilliant to speak with you, Sean. Thank you for sharing your story today. Thank you so much, Richard.
1: Appreciate you having me.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.